Good morning, loved ones. I had my greeting to Josh's greeting to you earlier. Uh, it's so sweet to be together in God's house, hearing His Word proclaimed to us and being refreshed together in His Gospel. What a wonderful prayer that last verse is there. What language shall we borrow to thank our Lord Jesus Christ for His love, His sorrow, His pity for our sakes? And it's our prayer that we would never outlive our love to Him. Let's turn to the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 50 is our Old Testament reading. Loved ones, let's receive this as it is the very Word of our God. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. And over to our New Testament text. Matthew 27, 11 through 26. As you, as you turn there, that, that servant song in Isaiah from Isaiah 50 shares many similarities with some of the other servant songs. Um, of course, Isaiah 53 being perhaps the most famous of those servant songs, the song of the suffering servant. The servant there is the one who is identified, in a sense, with God's people, but he's also distinct from God's people. And uh, he is the one who is persecuted by God's people, but suffers on behalf of God's people for their salvation, as, uh, as we see here now in our text, Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. The word of our God. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, Not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's bow our hearts and ask him to bless it to us. O Lord our God, make your word a swift word, passing from our ears to our hearts and from our hearts to our lives. That as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier we read those words in our confession of sin uh, from Hosea 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. It's quite a picture, isn't it, that God paints through the prophet Isaiah's word there? Uh, on my commute to college uh, back in the day, we, uh, the, 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 the road was winding alongside this river, and, and oftentimes early in the morning heading up there to school, uh, there'd, there'd be the mist coming off the river. And it was beautiful golden color, the, this morning sunlight hitting it. Right? A beautiful, beautiful scene, but, but it wouldn't last long at all. It wouldn't be long before it would evaporate in that warm, rising sunlight, and soon it would be gone. And, and, and this is something of the picture that God is giving His people through Hosea. He's saying, that's what your love is like. Nice, pretty thing, but then it evaporates. No substance. It doesn't last. Uh, God's love is everlasting love. 
goes on and on and on and on. His covenant faithfulness to his people, his loyalty to his people, knows no bounds. But his people's love is so fickle and so short-lived, it vanishes like mist on the grass in the morning sun. This is one of the themes that that is carried out, not just in Hosea 6 there, but it, it runs through so much of the prophets as they speak to Israel, as they bring the covenant lawsuit against them, saying, look how you've broken God's covenant. Look how, how faithless you've been, how, how disloyal to your God you've been. And uh, it, it comes out in other places. Jeremiah chapter 2 paints us this picture. It says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods but my people? have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, You've, you, you have the fountain of living waters, and you turn away from it to these broken, empty wells. And you're not satisfied and you'll never be satisfied. But you keep doing it. Disloyal to the covenant, breaking the covenant, running after false, powerless gods that cannot save and, and cannot satisfy. That's God's verdict on His people throughout so much of the Old Testament. And as we come now to Matthew 27, and we see God's people here rejecting the covenant king, the Christ, the promised Messiah, they're doing, they're doing exactly the same thing. All that history of breaking God's covenant, turning from the living God to empty, broken wells, that, 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 that's come to its great consummation here in our text this morning. As God's people look at the Christ, whom God has given, their covenant Lord, and they utterly, decisively reject Him and condemn Him to die. They're trading the living God for idols. They're breaking the covenant, bringing down the covenant curses on themselves. But loved ones, as we look at that, and as we look at the text and we see what they're doing, let us see ourselves there. It's easy to point the finger at them and, and call out their, their, their disloyalty, but our love also, is it not like a morning mist? Your love for the Lord, how quickly it evaporates. There one moment, gone the next. Choosing to turn away from all that God is for us to these empty, broken things that cannot save and cannot satisfy. We also are covenant breakers, aren't we? Breaking His law. Bringing His wrath and His curse down on ourselves. We are so disloyal to Him. And so the question is, what do, you, what do we do? What do we, God's faithless, disloyal people, do? Are we just under His curse? What do we do with the fact that our love is so disloyal and that we've earned His curse, not His blessing? That's what the text instructs us on this morning. I want to look at three, three things here in the text. Number one, as we work through this, is the King of the Covenant. The King of the Covenant. Uh, we, begin, we begin in verse 11. If you've got your Bibles there, you can see we're picking up verse 11. Here it is. It's Friday morning, Good Friday. The Jews have completed their pre-trial of Jesus during the night. They've decided we're going to condemn him to die, but they don't have authority to put him to death. 
because they're under Rome. So if they want him to be crucified, they have to take him to Rome, uh, to, to, to the Roman governor, and get Pilate to, to, to condemn him to die as well. So they bring him to Pilate, and they bring their charge. Luke, Luke's Gospel tells us that their charge is this. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's Luke 23, verse 2. That's the charge. It's a dangerous charge. If Jesus truly had been doing it, it would be something worthy of crucifixion under Roman law. Uh, the Jews have a history of insurrection, of trying to overthrow the, the Roman rule and, and rule themselves. And uh, Pilate doesn't want any of this going on, so he's interested in this. So uh, he, he turns to Jesus and he puts the question to him. You are the king of the Jews? How does Jesus answer? It's very similar to the answer he gave to uh, the chief priests when they said, Are you the Christ? It, it, there's a sense in which Jesus is, is he's saying yes, but a qualified yes. Yes, yes, I am king of the Jews. He says, it is as you say, but it's not as you might understand it. It is as you say, but Pilate, probably not as you understand. There's so much more to my kingship than you think. Like Pilate probably thinks someone who claims to be king of the Jews is someone who's trying to organize a political rebellion to claim leadership, overthrow Roman rule. Uh, but, but that's not at all what Christ is, is doing. Christ means something so much bigger. Christ means something so much uh, grander and more heavenly. The heavenly kingdom. He says, yes, I am the king of the Jews. It's an important title. We should understand what Christ is saying, not misunderstand it, like Pilate probably did. Um, what, what does Jesus mean when he says that he's the king of the Jews? Two things. Well, one is that it points us, that title points us to the past. Points us, points us back to David in the Old Testament. David is the great king of Israel, and God makes a covenant with him, makes a promise to him. Second Samuel 7, one of your descendants will reign on the throne of Israel forever and ever. He'll be the king of the Jews. And he will have this, this great kingdom. And Matthew, in his gospel, has been taking pains to, to show us that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He starts out the gospel with these words. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. There it is. Descended from the king, the greater king. Matthew 2, verse 2. Remember the story of the wise men? They come to Jesus. What are they looking for? They come to Jerusalem and they ask, where is he who was born king of the Jews? We're looking for this, this promised Messiah. Jesus is owning this title. Yes, I am the son of, of David. Uh, but he's also pointing us to the future, not just to the past that he's descended from this great David king, but that he's the one who's the, the Christ who's going to have this great kingdom over all of heaven and all of earth, that all the nations are going to bow to him and bring tribute to him, that his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, a divine kingdom. Jesus is saying to Pilate, I'm king of the Jews. And that means not just descended from David, but greater than David. And I will have a kingdom that is over all other kingdoms. I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords, sovereign over heaven and earth, the judge of all the world. It's a stunning thing then to, to see what Jesus is saying as he is the king of the Jews and to look at the scene here, isn't it? Here is the king of kings and lord of lords 
on trial for his life before Roman governor Pilate? Who is the authority to judge here between these two? Who is the greater of these? Who is, who is the authority to sentence someone to death here? It's surely not Pilate. Surely it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. But He's humbled Himself. God Himself has come down in the flesh and humbled Himself to the point where He's willing to submit to the judgment of a sinner. J.C. Ryle comments, marveling at this. He says, that sight must have been wonderful to the angels of God. Or the angels must have looked on in stupefied wonder. What is going on? Uh, he, he goes on, He who will one day judge the world allowed himself to be judged and condemned. Though he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He from, whom, from whose lips Pilate would one day receive his eternal sentence suffered silently an unjust sentence to be passed upon him. If you had the power and authority that Christ had, would you humble yourself to be allowed to be judged by one of your own creatures, a sinner? But that's what our Lord does. He bows his, he, he bows his neck, he bows his head, he, he, he goes all the way down, humbling himself in wonderful love and obedience. It's astonishing to see that here in the text. Our, our king, the king of the Jews, the king of the covenant. But what's more astonishing happens next verse 12 and following, where we, we begin to see this breaking of the covenant. That's our second heading, the breaking of the covenant. Remember those words in John chapter 1, verse 11, about our Lord Jesus Christ? He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. Uh, we, we've seen that playing out over the pages of Matthew's Gospel for, for most of the Gospel since the beginning of it. But in our text this morning, loved ones, it comes to a climax. It comes to, it comes to a fever pitch. Because what's happening here is not just that the, the Jews are committing some sin against some innocent person who doesn't deserve to die, but they are taking their king and their Messiah and their Savior and they're giving him over to the Gentiles, to their enemies. And they're saying, you crucify him. We've already noticed that uh, Jesus, accused by the chief priests and elders, is a tragic irony that they're the ones who are supposed to welcome the Messiah, honor the Messiah, receive the Messiah, and, and, and be His servants, and they're condemning Him. But now they are, they are taking it up a notch. They're bringing Him to Pilate, to the Gentiles, and saying, you also, you condemn Him, you crucify Him. The, the, the depth of their betrayal and the horror of their sin is, is staggering here. They are utterly repudiating God's covenant with them. They're take, right, they're, they're, it's as they're, they're taking the marriage license of God and His covenant people, and they're just ripping it to pieces and throwing it in the fire. We will have nothing to do with this covenant that you have cut with us in Jesus Christ. He is not our Christ. He is not our King. He is not our Lord. Think about this in light of, of the Old Testament loved ones. Um, think, think of those promises that God gave to His people. His promise to Abraham. His promise to Abraham's children. 
What did he say? I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you more numerous than the stars of heaven. I'll make your name great. I'll make you a blessing to all the nations. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He's the the long-awaited Jesus, the long-expected Jesus who has come to fulfill this promise and bring blessing and bring, bring, bring the inheritance. Everything that God said to Abraham was pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And now the children of Abraham, after waiting all these generations for these promises, reject it. Reject Christ. Crucify this fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Or think of David, the promise to David. Psalm 2 talks about the Lord's anointed and how the nations will plot together against Israel's king. But now Israel's plotting together against their own king and giving him over to the nations to be destroyed. There's this immense tragedy here in that all of Israel's history, they've been waiting for and longing for this one, and now they utterly reject him. And yet, this rejection is not surprising, is it? Because if, if, you, if you read the Old Testament, you see that this also, right? God promises these glorious things, but all along through the Old Testament, the people are rejecting it, aren't they? In so many instances. Um, we see it at the foot of Mount Sinai. God comes down on the mountain, and He covenants with His people. He's just saved them from Egypt. And as Moses meets with them on the mountain to receive His covenant, they bow down to a golden calf and say, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt, O Israel. Committing spiritual adultery on the very honeymoon of God's covenant with them there at Mount Sinai. We see it, we see it as they come into the promised land under the kings, as they exchange God for Baal and turn away from Yahweh to, 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 to these false gods of the nations around them. We see it as they're driven into exile. Right? They're continued Long history of breaking God's covenant over and over and over. So what's happening here in Matthew is the last chapter and a long disobedience in the same direction. This long tragedy of their rejecting God and His covenant. And it comes out so clearly here in the text as they choose Barabbas over Jesus. Look at me at verses 15 to 26 here as they, as they make this tragic, this tragic choice. Pilate... Pilate is hesitant to fulfill their request to have Christ crucified um, because Jesus is clearly innocent. The charge they've brought against him does not seem to stick in Pilate's mind. Um, But as the charges keep getting piled on Jesus, Jesus says nothing. He makes no defense. So Pilate really, Jesus, make no defense for for yourself. What what else can I do but, but deliver you over to be crucified? But he makes this, he has this idea. Verse 17, he decides to offer to the Jews to release to them Barabbas or Jesus. It's quite a choice. Um, Barabbas, verse 16 says, is a prisoner. He's a notorious prisoner. Uh, He was a rebel, according to Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, who had participated in an insurrection attempt and committed murder in Jerusalem. And um, he had made a name for himself as a zealot, but that he'd murdered someone. On the other hand, we have Jesus, the one who didn't murder, but the one who raised from the dead, the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Pilate's thinking, well, they're going to choose Jesus and release Jesus, right? This, this crowd that's gathered here, these Jews, they're, they're not going to choose the murderer. They'll choose the life giver, the one who's done these wonders and these miracles. 
um, he sees that Jesus is innocent. So he says, shall I release Jesus or Barabbas? Now you'd think the choice would be so obvious. Who would ever choose Barabbas over Jesus? Why wouldn't you want Jesus released when he's done all these good and gracious things, when, as, as the Gospels say, he went about doing good? Why wouldn't you choose that one over this murderer and this criminal? But the chief priests and the elders have been at work in this crowd of Jews, and they've persuaded them to ask for Barabbas. And perhaps to many of them, it was what they truly wanted, that, that Barabbas, to them, was a hero, because he hadn't been scared of Rome. Now, when Jesus was asked, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. But Barabbas, no, he takes out a sword, and he goes after them. Right? He, he, he's a real hero. He'd, he'd been a real leader, a real fighter for, for their cause. And so the crowd shouts out, give us Barabbas. Pilate, again, he asks, what shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him is their response. Pilate asks again, what shall I do with him? Uh, what, what shall I do? What wrong has he done that I should crucify him? But they just come back with their cry, crucify him. Loved ones, this is Israel's tragic choice. That after all these generations of God saving them, being faithful to them, that it comes down to this. Give us a king like the other nations. Not the Christ who talks about this kingdom of heaven. We want, we want something like the other nations have. Give us, give us a hero like they have. They choose this violent rebel over the Prince of Peace. They choose the one who represents a kingdom of this world over the one who promises them the kingdom of heaven. Their words in verse 26 are the most tragic of all. They say, His blood, Christ's blood, be on us and on our children. If only they had meant that in the right way. But if only they had meant, cover our doorposts with the blood of the Lamb. Sprinkle us with the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of our sins. If only they meant that, that's not at all what they mean. They mean, murder him, that innocent man. We will not have him as our Christ. And may the guilt be on us and on our children. Pilate gives in. No courage or integrity on his part, just political expediency. He knows that Jesus is innocent, and yet he willingly gives him over to be crucified because he doesn't want to risk his own job. Um, he's a coward here, and he's guilty with them in this. Delivers Jesus over to be crucified. And, and, and so, loved ones, what I want you to see is that, that, that as we come to this point now, where the Jews have so fully and decisively rejected Christ, that on their end, on our end, God's people's end. The covenant is hopeless. Our relationship with God is completely in tatters. That, that they're screaming at their covenant God, crucify Him. They're speaking to Yahweh this way. This is where all those promises to Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David, this is where it all ends? With God's people? Crucify you, Lord. We will have nothing to do with you. 
and, and we are guilty with them, aren't we? For our own disloyalty, our own choice to turn away from Him to some other God that, that does not save and does not satisfy. So many times we make the same choice they make here. Barabbas or Jesus? Kingdom of this world or kingdom of heaven? Well, I'll take my little kingdom of this world over what Christ gives in the kingdom of heaven. The prayer of our lives is so often not, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, but hallowed be my name. My kingdom come and my will be done. Just like their prayer is here. James 4 verse 4 calls us out. Just like the Old Testament prophets called out God's people in the Old Testament, doesn't it? It says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is, is enmity with God? It's the same thing God's saying in Hosea 6. What shall I do with you, O church? What shall I do with you, O people of God? Your love is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes early away. Matthew 27 drives this point home. It, it pummels us over and over with this point, loved ones, that we, God's people, have utterly failed. Judas, Peter, the priests, the crowds, ourselves. And so the question is, is the covenant over at this point? Is it broken? Is it over? Is it done? And that's where we turn now. Third point, the keeping of the covenant. The answer that we see in the text is a resounding no. No, the covenant is anything but over because of our Lord Jesus Christ the covenant keeper. Even as Israel commits this climactic act of treason and covenant breaking, true Israel, our Lord Jesus Christ, keeps the covenant, perfects the covenant, begins the new covenant. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented to us as true Israel. He is the one who represents all that Israel should be, he is the ideal Israelite, but he's also very much, he, he is Israel himself. That he is the covenant people of God, summed up in one person. Uh, all that Israel was ever supposed to be is embodied in Christ Jesus. Matthew makes this point early on in, uh, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. You might remember the story where, uh, where, where um, Herod wants to kill all the babies born in Bethlehem, under two years old, and so Mary and Joseph take little baby Jesus, and they, they, run, excuse me, they, they run away to Egypt, and there it, they spend some time in Egypt, and after Herod dies, they, they come back to, uh, to, to, to Israel, and, and, and Matthew says, he quotes Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and says, this was done to fulfill what God said by his prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Um, some critical scholars looking at Matthew's use of Hosea 11 there say, well, Matthew is making a big mistake. Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son, isn't prophesying something Jesus will do. That's talking about the past, something God did with the nation of Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. But that's, uh, that's to completely miss the point. Matthew's saying, exactly. It's exactly what I'm saying. But God's people Israel coming out of Egypt was pointing forward to God's true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ coming out of Egypt back to their promised land. 
Egypt points, uh, Israel being called out of Egypt points forward to God calling Jesus out of Egypt because Jesus is Israel. He's the people of God. And throughout the Old Testament, God promised his people. Many of them would fall away, but there would be this remnant remaining, true Israel, within Israel. So Isaiah 10 says, in that day, the remnant of Israel the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Of course, Isaiah is talking in part about the exile, and that after the exile, some small remnant of the people will come back to the land and be God's people again. Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that happening. But Matthew's intent throughout his gospel as well, I think, is to show us that the remnant... The faithful remnant of Israel is actually Jesus. Only Jesus. And that's what we see in the passage. Every other person, every other Israelite utterly fails. Jesus succeeds. Jesus succeeds. This passage then is not so much about Israel's failure as Israel's success. True Israel's, Jesus's success. This comes through most clearly of all, I think, when we see what Jesus is doing here as fulfilling Isaiah 53, the servant song of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord is the one who represents God's people and he suffers to save God's people. And Jesus, we see, is fulfilling that here. We see, first of all, Jesus is suffering silently. If you notice in the text, as we read, uh, Jesus is on trial before Pilate uh, but, but he doesn't make any response to the charges that are, that are brought against him. If, you don't, if you're standing there in a court of law and the charges are being piled on and you make no defense, you're saying, I accept it. I'm going to go along with it. He's not pleading guilty because he didn't sin according to the way they're charging him with sin, but he's saying, I'm accepting the sin they're piling on and I accept and embrace the punishment that's coming. Pilate is astonished. He's never seen anything like this. Someone quietly taking all this sin on himself and willing to go to the cross so quietly, so meekly. And it fulfills Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's our Lord Jesus Christ here. Meekly quietly, passively receiving this this great burden of sin and and the crucifixion to come, like a gentle, quiet lamb being led to the slaughter. Jesus, Jesus goes. He's completely submissive to God. Think of that stark contrast with God's failed people, stiff-necked, stubborn, complaining, and loud. And yet God gently leads His Son to the slaughter and His Son quietly, obediently, submissively goes. Not a word of complaint comes from his mouth. He comes and he suffers this silently. Second, Jesus here suffers innocently. Isaiah 59, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 53 verse 9 says this about the suffering servant. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And 53.11 calls him the righteous one. It's the same way that Pilate's wife describes Jesus to Pilate. Have nothing to do with this man because he's just. He's righteous. He's innocent. Pilate, when he asks the crowd, verse 23, what evil has he done? They can't give an answer. 
they just shout, crucify him. But there's, he's not done anything against God. No sin in him. He is perfectly righteous, flawless life, um, a marvel of obedience and submission and, and, and long-suffering and loyalty. Um, Hosea 6 was never true of him. His love was never like a morning cloud that goes quickly away. He was faithful to his God all his days. But instead, he receives the opposite of what he deserves. Where we, God's people, have this record of covenant breaking, he has a record of perfect covenant keeping. Third here, we see that Jesus suffering in our place is is our substitute. Isaiah 53 tells us that the suffering servant who represents Israel, will suffer in the place of guilty Israel. That that God has this servant who's righteous and innocent, but that servant is going to take guilty Israel's place and suffer all that should have fallen on Israel, suffer the curse. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. The promise there, the prophecy, is that true Israel will suffer for false Israel. Faithful Israel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will suffer in the place of faithless Israel. That the Messiah will bear in his own body the agony of the wrath of God for all our sins. And what a powerful picture we get of that in Matthew 27, don't we? as Jesus is exchanged for Barabbas. Barabbas represents Israel's failure, doesn't he? He represents Israel's idolatry and Israel's desire to have an earthly kingdom, not a heavenly kingdom. He was guilty and deserved to die. He deserved crucifixion. He was a rebel. In fact, one commentator notes, it was very likely that the third cross that Jesus ended up on was probably for Barabbas in the first place. It appears there were already three crosses prepared. Two criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus are called rebels, insurrectionists, just like Barabbas is called, the same word used for them as for him. And this is the kind of crime that gets punished with crucifixion. They're not mere robbers. Some translations have that. They're not robbers. Uh, That's not punished by crucifixion. It's it's insurrection against Rome, which is exactly what Barabbas is guilty for. It's punished by crucifixion. And it seems likely to me that the cross in the middle was for their leader, Barabbas, the notorious Barabbas. But then suddenly, at the last minute, a substitution is made. And Barabbas, guilty, sinful, wicked Barabbas, is set scot-free. And someone else gets on his cross and goes to die in his place. Barabbas is forgiven. His record is cleared. Jesus takes his sin and goes to the cross in his place, takes the wrath of God. Jesus is handed over. He's scourged, we're told. He's whipped, his flesh mutilated by these Roman whips, and then he's sent to the cross All of this should have fallen on Barabbas, but instead it falls on Jesus. And our Lord Jesus, our faithful, innocent, and precious Savior, He embraces it. He he, he willingly takes it. doesn't utter a word. He goes straight into it. He does it, loved ones, not 
So much, I think, for Barabbas, but for you and me. We don't know. There's no record of Barabbas repenting. But the, the cross that Jesus took should have been our cross, just as it should have been Barabbas' cross. The scourging he took should have been ours. The, 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 the wrath of God that he suffered should have been ours. We are guilty covenant breakers. The wrath of God should have fallen on us. We are not the faithful remnant. But faithful Jesus, the true Israel, takes our cross. Well, this, is the, this is the glory of the gospel. Other places we see this presented for us in, in, in crisp, clear, declarative sentences. Doctrine and teaching. Here we get it in vivid, high definition played out for us with this parable. Barabbas for Jesus. Jesus in place of Barabbas. That's our hope. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. So what do we do with our covenant breaking? With our love which is so fickle and which so quickly dissipates and evaporates? We take it to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, the covenant breakers, need Christ, the covenant keeper, to take our curse so that it all goes on Him and none on us. Loved ones, if you do that, if you go to Christ with all your sin, He will take all of it. He already has paid in full all that price for your sins. And that means there's no wrath, no condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think of it like this. When a criminal is condemned for his crimes, faces the death penalty, and is executed, those crimes are fully paid for. They're not going, no one else is going to pay for that crime. It's been paid in full. It's done, and, and so it is with Jesus. He goes to the cross that we deserved, and justice is satisfied. God's not going to reopen the case and bring the charges out again against you and pour out His wrath on you. You're free. Free forever covered with the glorious faithfulness and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no death sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. So go to Him. Go to Him with your disloyalty and your covenant breaking. Go to Him again and again and cry out, Lord Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, cover me. You are the covenant keeper and the true Israel. Make me faithful in You. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for our Savior. We thank You for the perfection of His obedience. We pray that we would look to Him and receive, by grace, the full free gift of forgiveness of sins. We ask it in His name. Amen.